0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book. Cover to Cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Well, we are in uh, the Big Book, uh, Cover to Cover, and today we look at the minor prophet Joel. It is a very brief book. Uh, It's uh, three chapters, 73 verses. You can read it in about four minutes. Um, it's hard to read that quickly. We know very little about Joel and we know even less about his father. Pethula uh, is his name. Uh, we know less about the dating of the book. There's big debates among scholars and commentators about uh, when this book was written, where it falls in timelines. And I just review that because some things in the Bible we just can't always know the answers to. And so we live with a little bit of tension. Yet the book is is so comprehensive in its referencing to other Old Testament prophets as well as how the New Testament employs the book, so it engenders a lot of uh, attention. Let me read from our friends uh, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson and their book called Through the Bible, uh, parts of the introduction that they distill the book of Joel. Joel uses a recent calamity in the nation of Judah to teach his hearers a prophetic lesson. A locust plague has invaded the land, destroying every green thing in its path. Grapevines were stripped clean, grain fields were laid bare, fruit trees stood leafless and unproductive. The devastation was so complete that even grain offerings to God were impossible. Joel uses the locust invasion as a starting point of his sermon, as bad as the locust plays plague was, it would pale by comparison with what God was about to bring upon his people. An army from the north would come to attack the nation, leaving behind devastation even more complete than that of the locusts. The only hope for Joel's hearers, heartfelt repentance before the terrible day arrives, and the slide we showed you earlier actually is a current plague going on in east africa right as we speak you might have seen this in the news and they are a devastating uh, 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 it's just you know it's biblical proportions they come in they eat they strip they just defoliate and they leave and you can't stop them They'll, they'll burn rags and try to smoke them out. And you'll see people running around. You can't stop them. There's just too many of them. If any of you live through the 17-year cicada cycle, uh, multiply that times a billion. And that's the numbers that they're dealing with right now as, as we speak. Well, in this brief book of Joel, uh, it begins with, this is the word of the Lord that came to Joel. And Again, in reading this, uh, I'm I'm just struck, and I'm reminded again, and I want to remind you, Joel received God's word. And we just presume this. This is the very word of God. The book you hold, uh, what you read on your tablet, it is the very word of God. What Joel received, Judah heard, and we're reading it. And it's the very word of God. And this stands in such contrast to um, information we have today, what how we learn today, what we know, who do we believe, what do we trust? There's so much misinformation. In the book you're holding in your lap is God's Word. It's reliable. It's undeniable. A major theme in the book is this phrase, the day of the Lord. And it is a complicated phrase in Old and New Testament. And in Joel, it looks both backward and it looks to the future. And we'll talk and some length about the day of the Lord as Joel uses it. He references it five times specifically in his book, and the verses are up there, chapter 115, 21, 2.11, 2.31, and 3.14, and I wanna read each of those, and I'm gonna ask you to read them with me aloud responsibly, read with me. Let's start with Joel 1, verse 15. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So we're talking about a specific time, and it's bad. Destruction is coming. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, read with me. Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. So this ominous warning... The third time in chapter two, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? And then the fourth one in chapter 231, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then finally in chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord has a lot of fields of meaning, but the way Joel is using it predominantly is talking about a specific time where God's judgment is going to come. Again, to remind you, so the locust plague had occurred, And they understood that. It'd be like saying, do you remember when the 17-year cicadas came through? Do you remember 9-11? Do you remember Pearl Harbor? These are benchmark dates for Israel. They knew about this locust plague. And so now he's saying, if you understand that, the day of the Lord is going to be worse. And you need to prepare yourself for this judgment. By the way, they can't stop the judgment. It's going to happen. But you're going to enter that judgment either unrepentant or repentant. So it's an interesting uh, argument that Joel is giving them. Joel is also speaking of the end times. And um, I got in a conversation in recent weeks with someone here at Stonebridge about, you know, why don't we talk about prophecy in the end times? I said, well, we do when we get there. Um, but this is a good example of uh, Joel is speaking about this has happened before. Something's going to happen in your future. But there's also another fulfillment that's about to come much later, and that'll be what we call the eschaton, the end times. And it's interesting, the Day of the Lord shows a host of events. Dr. Robert Chisholm, in his little commentary on Joel, uh, gives a lot of information, but I wanted to distill it into three points where he talks about this Day of the Lord to help you understand it when you're reading it, both in Joel and in the New Testament. First of all, he says, Israel's, before Israel's enemies will be destroyed, Uh, They will be plundered and it will be devastated, the land of Israel. This will be a time of anguish for Israel. Jesus called this time period the great tribulation, a time of great distress for the nation. Think about this again. Joel, the Old Testament prophet, is talking about something that's going to happen to Judah in the near future and the world in the ultimate end times. A second way Chisholm points out, after the Lord will destroy his enemies at the Messiah's return the day of the Lord will include a time of blessing for Israel known as the millennium. So this judgment that Joel is forecasting is going to happen in a literal way, I believe, you may not, I believe a literal way and then of course Christ will come and He will reign and then that's the third point. After the millennium the day of the Lord will also include the destruction of the present heavens and the earth and the making of the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, according to scripture, he writes these passages besides those in Joel, the day of the Lord will be a lengthy time period, including judgment and blessing. It will begin after the rapture and will include a seven year tribulation, the return of Messiah, the millennium and the making of the new heavens and earth. And it's a lot of information. I dump very quickly not setting the time scheme aside, not worrying about, you know, the three, three and a half year tribulation, literal, ah, mill, post, mill, pre, not getting lost in those weeds. Keep in mind, Joel's prophesying, you saw what happened. These plagues have come. It's going to come again with an army in your lifetime. And in the future, there's going to be a bigger one. So these are great illustrations for the people of Israel as well as for a modern audience. Joel got it from God. Joel communicates it to Judah and Israel. And now we're reading it and we're still in this timeline of the prophetic fulfillment of being unfolded. Let's look at some high observations of the book of Joel. It's very simple to outline. Chapter 1 and chapters 2 and 3 break the book in part. Uh, chapter 1 is the historic and the past of what happened to them. And chapter 2 and 3 is both prophetic and future. It's a real simple way to think of the book. The plague of locust is debated as whether it was literal or figurative and in the ancient Near East, again, they were very familiar with locust plagues. Even back in the day of Egypt they understood this. And the plague of the locust coming in the future is an army, not another set of locusts coming. And so that's the appeal and the big debate. In chapter 2 we read of the retribution that's going to come to Israel. And this is the hard part for me. It doesn't matter if you enter this repentant or unrepentant. It's going to happen. And that's in a way, a unique message in the Old Testament. Most often we hear about, "Well, if you repent, then God may relent." Or maybe he'll change his mind, and we'll read a verse in a minute that talks about that as well. But the point of this book is, do you want to inner judgment forgiven, or do you want to inner judgment arching your back in sin and knowing that there's a future blessing, and it? it does matter how we live? As I encourage you, as we go through these books over and over, look for repetition, look for common themes, look for something that you read, and you see it pop off the page every time. The phrase "I will" is the one that pops up thirteen times seventy three verses and we 're reading "I will, I 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 will I will don't miss it it 's like a yellow flag in the margin. Pay attention to what God is saying here it 's hard to miss so one observation we can make on this repetition is god is going to act this is the word of the lord that came to joel god will fulfill what he says he's going to do it Um, it's interesting right now and and you may have um, seen this in the recent political news in the past several weeks there's and i can't find the correct title for it i spent too much time looking but let's just call it congressional immunity uh, you can say things on the floor of the House or the Senate that can be complete fabrications or lies. You can say things in a committee as an elected official. It's a lie or a mistruth or misleading as long as you're not under oath. So that's why we have a distaste for politicians, because they say all these things. Forget what they promise when they're running for election. Think through what they say, and we go, is that true or not? Because he said this, and he said that. She said this. One of them's got to be wrong, or they're just parsing it and nuancing it, and they using different words in just a little way where it's not completely a fault. I mean, we go crazy with this stuff, right? The story is you can't be uh, uh, you can't be tried or convicted for something you say on the floor unless you're under oath. If you lie under oath, now it's a problem so when they have on the record when they make these speeches on the floor and you go i don't know if i believe that or not um it it just churns us we have a distaste for politicians don't you wish you had men and women you could trust completely all the time how much more god's word i will i will i will i will will. And to me, it's a great reminder that as unfair and crazy as the world is sometimes, this book doesn't fall under immunity. Or I didn't say it under oath. In fact, we could argue every time God speaks, he's speaking under oath. Because he's speaking his very word. A second phrase, or just word, that occurs, again, highly repeated, is the word land. Eleven times you read land, and sometimes this land refers not only to the land of Israel, but other Applications. But again, don't miss common repetition and frequency. And what the author is saying, step back. God's word's important. I will execute this the way I said I'm going to. And the land is still part of his plan. And of course, that's one reason I continue to lead tours to Israel. Some of you have been, some of you also lead tours, uh, is because I want people to see this land. I want them to put eyes on it, to walk around it, to look at things. It's to see the Sea of Galilee is really just a big lake. To see the River Jordan ain't that exciting. To see the Dead Sea and go, oh, that's the Dead Sea. To go into the wilderness, understand what that was like. To see what water is in a cistern or in a lake or living water. To see a wadi. You know, you see those things, and it's you know you can't watch a movie and comprehend it. You have to go and lay eyes on it when you see it, and then you see the political and military fighting that will never stop on this little sliver of land. Joel, in God's record, is saying the land going back to the Abrahamic covenant, I'm going to give you a land. It's a land of promise, a land of prosperity, and it still holds a mark uh, in God's prophetic plan. Let's jump to something that we don't do much, but let's talk about the use of the Old Testament in the New. And Joel is interesting. I think it's six times. I could be wrong on that. It might be more, but I want to look at two times the New Testament uses a quotation from Joel. Before we look at these two passages in uh, the New Testament, let's read together the reference that Peter is going to use and Jesus will also refer to. Let's read this together. This is Joel 2, 28 and 29 from the screen. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. A lot of misinformation comes out of this passage. But one thing I want you to see is there's no differentiation between class, the priest, the prophet, the king, even servants can have God's spirit indwelling them. So this is an Old Testament passage. Joel is saying God told him to say, to write. Now we'll look at how Peter used it and we'll look at how Jesus uses it. Peter uses it in Acts chapter 2. And it's about the promise of the Holy Spirit coming. This is without equal in our New Testament. It's one of the most powerful sermons in the Bible. And it's the day of Pentecost, or a remarkable day. God had told His apostles to wait in Jerusalem until He returned. And so we have the Feast of Pentecost 50 days later during the celebration. It was, it was the largest celebration for the Jew to go up to Passover in this time of year. And so the Jews are in the city. They're celebrating. It's a big festival. They're eating and drinking and celebrating. It's, it's like our Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever rolled into one. It's a big deal for the Jew. And on the day of Pentecost, this is when the Holy Spirit comes. And of course, you know the story. Uh, each, they have 13 dialects, listed in Acts chapter 2, and each one is speaking in his own language and others are hearing in their own language. So this miracle of dialectos is occurring. And when uh, the uh, the, the perimeter is seeing this, they go, all these people are drunk, and they have all these disparaging things to say, and listen to what Peter the Apostle says in chapter 2 of Acts beginning at verse 16. This is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. This shouldn't be a surprise to you. This is what God told Joel was going to happen. We're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. It's almost a verbatim quotation of what Joel wrote in the time when he's warning Judah about what's going to happen. So God gave the prophecy to Joel. They heard it in their time. We read it in our time. But in the New Testament, Peter uses this to say this is what was prophesied was going to happen. Verse 19, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Remember the blood moon nonsense we had going on a few months back when the so-called blood moon, it'll come around again. People like this stuff. Before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, This is the call of salvation. Joel is using this message to say uh, these people aren't drunk as it looks to you. It's early in the morning paraphrase. What's happening here is the fulfillment of the prophecy that God's Spirit would come and this sign this wonder is to authenticate God's Word was true then. The Holy Spirit has come now. And remember Jesus told His Apostles He had to go, in the Upper Room Discourse, He had to go and prepare a place for them in order to send His Spirit. And the Spirit was the one who would indwell them and give them power to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. So Joel has prophesied that, Peter appeals to that. Now let's look at what Jesus, how He appeals to this. And this is in the so-called Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 29, Why don't you read this one with me? It's just one verse. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. So he's talking about a tribulation in the future, but he's also appealed to Joel's prophecy. No matter what the wrath is, the coming judgment is for Judah, Judah. the, the, the bottom line of this whole book to me is a lesson that you, you need to repent. It's never too late to repent. Repentance is a, uh, sometimes a misunderstood uh, idea. Uh, repentance simply means turning from sin. You're not making your flesh better. You're not cleaning up your act. You're turning from sin. Repent means to stop believing this and start believing that. The word is simply to turn are you going to turn and we don 't talk about this perhaps much in small groups or in marriages or I mean you might talk about it when you 're parenting um, but it 's never too late to repent it 's never too late to humbly come to God and ask for mercy and grace when you are parenting children uh, we 're trying to teach our kids um, to have short accounts when they sin, when they lie, when they're angry, when they hit their sibling, when they steal, when they taste something that's not there. I mean you're running herd from about what, two years old till, you know, they're out of your house on trying to steer them in the right direction. Um, our oldest daughter has two boys here in town and she had a little Instagram video for the family where her um, our youngest grandson, uh, Pax, is crawling now like crazy, and they built a little tower to incentivize him to crawl across the room and knock the tower over. Well, his big brother Isaac, who's a little over too, uh, he can't resist knocking the tower over. Because that's what big brothers do, right? You, you do it. You don't wait for your little brother to do it. And watching them parent in this video with this simple little thing of, you know, hey, this, uh, you know, the toddler's creed. you know, That's where Isaac is. It's all his. Everything's mine. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. If it's mine one time, it's always mine. If I take it, give it away. And ta- it's always mine. It's mine. That's how a toddler looks at life. Well, you take something away. and say, no, share with your brother. See, that's a new learning curve, right? We're doing that the rest of our lives. Your children are free agents. You cannot make them believe. You cannot make them change. You give them guardrails. You give them logical consequences. You give them, if then, if you do this, then this is going to happen, which is, by the way, the best teacher in the world, in my opinion. Um, some of us have strong-willed children or defiant obstinate defiant children so forth and so on and you know you pull your hair out as a parent trying to raise these boys and girls to love god and be kind to their siblings and just be civil people to say thank you to say yes ma'am no ma'am yes sir no sir uh you know to to say can i help clean up the kitchen i mean just normal stuff of life and it's just a battle it never stops and then teenagers you think you're gonna kill everybody in your house right i mean yeah. you know you know the axiom that grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your teenager. So don't kill your teen because you'll get a grandson one day or a granddaughter one day. Um, and, and the challenge of this, when it comes to repentance is, we're just slow to own our sin. We're slow to say I was wrong. I lied. I was angry. I wish I hadn't said those words. Why is that so hard to get out of our mouth? And as the story of Joel's talking about, um, you know, it goes better if you confess. All of us as parents have used this leverage. If you tell the truth now, it's going to go easier. If you continue to lie, it's going to be worse. And if you have more than one child, God always gives you one child that's going to test that to the nth degree. I mean, there can be a videotape, smoking gun, fingerprints, eyewitnesses, and they can still say, I didn't do that. And if you don't have more than one child, you haven't experienced that joyful thing. Um, I I hesitate to talk about non-Christian movies I watch because people get upset about, you watch that movie? I'm old enough now, I don't care. Um, I love Shawshank Redemption. I love Shawshank Redemption. And uh, there's a line in there, in the short story, as well as as in the movie, a screenplay, where um, they're all sitting in the cafeteria, and they're talking about why they're in prison. And Red, who's played in the movie by Morgan Freeman, by the way, in Stephen King's short story, he's an Irishman, that's why he's called Red. But they cast him as an African-American, so when he's playing baseball, he goes, I guess it's because I'm Irish, you know. Anyway, uh, I digress. Um, But they're sitting there, and Red says, I'm the only guilty man in Shawshank what a poignant lesson. We're all innocent. I did not think you wrong. It's my brother's fault. It's your fault, mom. It's your fault. Dad, it's my sister's fault. It's the teacher's fault. Oh, my lands. how many battles have you fought raising kids and it was the teacher's fault? Oh, goodness gracious. Hang it up, right? Um, why is it so hard? I was wrong. And what you're trying to teach your kids are, if you'll say that, it goes so easy. And we're forgiving. We will forgive you. May there be consequences? Yeah. But they're going to be lighter if you confess and own up and don't blame your brother. Don't blame your sister. Don't get mad and scream at your mom. I, I, of course, none of you have children like some of our children who cuss us out. That's a real fun experience to go through. Um, don't ask any of me about parenting because we don't know what we're doing. Uh, we used to teach parenting conferences. We've repented ever since. And uh, <clears throat> um, two of our girls are phenomenal, and the other two are, you know, from, from baseball, we're batting 500. But parenting, it stinks, you know. You, you try to train. They're free agents. They're free agents. And as a mom and dad, you're, you're doing everything you can to love, to encourage, to exemplify. And, you know, the... The horrible thing about being a parent is you have to be the example when you say something you shouldn't or do something. You say, Mom was wrong. Dad was wrong. I'm sorry. I mean, how many times do we raise our voice to get angry at our kids because they won't pick up their room? And then, well, it's your fault that I'm mad. Oh, gosh, you know. And so you say, okay, I was wrong. I yelled at you. I shouldn't have yelled at you. But clean up your room anyway, right? I mean, that's how we feel. And it's just a circle. But... As I said a few weeks back, lecturing makes you feel good as a parent. It doesn't change your kid's opinion. Oh, I should clean up my room. Thanks for reminding me, Dad. That's a great idea to have a clean room, to shower and actually use soap. What a novel idea. Thank you for telling me this. Why is it so hard to repent? Why is it so hard to admit? Judah is going to go through judgment. And the message of the book of Judah is return. Return. Listen to Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. What a delicious line. I don't want you to tear your garments and put dirt on your head. That's, that's superficial. I want you to rend your heart. Return to the Lord your God. By the way, return in verse 12 twice It's the idea of repentance from what you're doing to something else. You stop doing that. Start doing this. That's all repentance, all returning means. For he is gracious and compassionate. That's what we find in a parent when you say, I'm wrong. It was my fault, dad. My fault, mom. I was the one. Slowed anger, abounding in love and kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Remember David when his firstborn son uh, is dying, and David won't eat or drink, and then afterwards he gets up and washes himself and eats, and the servants ask him sheepishly, why when he was sick you wouldn't eat? Now He goes, well, I, I didn't know. Maybe the Lord would turn. Maybe the Lord would have forgiven me, but he didn't. That posture, I think as a parent, this is the consequence no matter what. But if your son or daughter is truly repentant, what does it do to your heart? They're still going to learn a tough lesson, but I love them. And the relationship is there. Verse 15, blow a trumpet in Zion. Notice the verb, uh, imperative verb we're looking at. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate, set apart a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble All these injunctions. Even though judgment's going to come, this is your role, men and women. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his, his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance or reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where's their God? It's never too late to repent. It's never too late you humble yourself before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. We have a God who's more merciful and more gracious and more compassionate than any human on the planet. Human beings can keep, we have memory Even though I forgive you, I still kind of have it back there. It still irritates me. It still bugs me. And we want a pound of flesh. And then we want another pound of flesh. Another pound of flesh. When when do we get to the point where I've truly forgiven my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, my parents, the victimization I experienced? When do we truly forgive and let it go? And that will eat you alive if you don't. Any of us in here who have struggled with that, because, yeah, I know, it eats you alive. You wake up thinking about it. It jumps into your head at random times. You see a person and there's a connection there and it just makes you sick. Repentance is a wonderful thing. You humble yourself. You come before him. And you know what? He always forgives. He always forgives.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.